Good morning. Uh, it's always really encouraging to see everyone who's here this morning, um, especially if you're visiting with us. We're just so thankful that uh, your care for the Lord um, oftentimes uh, will see people who care for the Lord in a way where even while they're away from home, uh, far away from home in the, in the world, um, you realize that your real home is where brethren are and that your home is set up in heaven on Mount Zion. And so we are very thankful for the encouragement that you bring us in being here. Uh, and this, this lesson um, this morning, as you can see on the board, is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, you can go ahead and be turning in your Bibles there. We um, did an overview of 1 Timothy chapters 1 through 3 uh, last, uh, well, it was a few weeks ago. And one of the things that I had mentioned in that lesson was that it, you see in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus that Paul urged both of those men uh, to make sure that they were teaching the things in those letters uh, to the brethren both, both publicly and personally. Uh, we'll see that in this chapter as well. Paul will urge Timothy to teach and prescribe the things that we're discussing this, this morning. Um, but we talked about how important that is to, to see how 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are not just letters written exclusively for evangelists, you know, men who preach, but we have those letters in our Bibles so that we can all understand the direction and the calling that God is trying to lead us into, so that we can all understand what's, what's the purpose of who we are, what's the importance of who we are, and who should we be striving to become. So this chapter specifically really is dealing with the kind of attitude and focus that we need to have as God's people and how do, we, how do we grow in that focus? So the title of this lesson is the bottom part, um, being trained in the words of the faith. That's an ESV translation of verse 6 that we'll see. Uh, the idea of being trained in the words of faith or constantly nourished on the words of, of faith. Uh, and before we start reading verses 1 through 5, uh, I'm sorry, 1 through, um, 1 through 6 is going to be the uh, first point. Uh, no, I think it is wrong on the board. It's 1 through 5 is going to be our first point. Uh, but before we read that, one of the things that I think is important to note about these letters as well, Satan will do everything that he can and is doing everything that he can uh, to get us to shift our focus here. And that's just how things are going to always be. There's always going to be this great aggressive resistance to the work of God in our personal lives, in our relationships together, and the better we understand these principles in chapter 4, the more that God will be able to empower us and work in us to magnify his grace and will even through those things so that instead of growing weary or discouraged or distracted, we instead become even more rooted, grounded, and fortified in our purpose. Uh, so 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 5. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So the first question and this is really the main question that I want to consider. What is the Spirit expressly exposing? Uh, there are some unique words in this chapter, uh, in like the Greek language, and I'm not like 
I, I've said this before. Um, I'm not like a, I don't know Greek. I'm not a Greek expert, but there are resources that just are helpful because God, God uses his language very purposely. And sometimes there's some interesting things you find when you look up words. Well, one of the interesting things about this chapter is there are a lot of unique words in this chapter, which I think heighten the degree of gravity in the warning that's being given here. So the, the word that's unique here is explicitly or expressly. That's nowhere else in the New Testament where it said that something is being said very explicitly. The idea is this is being stated as clearly as possible. And there's not many times when it says this is something that the Spirit is saying as clear as possible. Obviously, we know that all Scripture is inspired by God, right? So for it to be said that this is something that the Spirit particularly wants us to know that he is saying and warning us against is of, like, primary importance, right? So I think the main thing we get out of this, false teaching is a symptom of a deeper problem. Like, I want you to imagine if we were talking, or maybe even, like, me preaching. Just imagine if, like, I'm in the middle of saying something here, and I start, like, coughing up blood. And, like, everybody sees that, like, I've got blood all over my hand, but I just kind of wipe it away with, like, it's nothing, and I just continue on teaching. And then, like, you come up to me and you try to stress, like, Brian, is something wrong? And I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I'm okay. Like, I, I feel fine. You know, I'm healthy. And you imagine, like, you would probably then urge me to see, like, well, I hear you, but you coughed up blood. <laughs> so there probably is something pretty serious that you need to go to the doctor to get checked out. So, okay, continue to imagine this. Let's say I go to the doctor. And they diagnose me with an aggressive lung cancer that's spreading. And they tell me that this could get into my brain if I don't get some kind of treatment for this really quickly. Imagine if I tell myself, you know what? I'm otherwise pretty healthy. I uh, feel pretty good. And I exercise. So because of all of that, I really don't think this is that big of a deal. Imagine if you knew that that was the diagnosis, that I had an aggressive form of cancer, and you tried to convince me that I need to listen to the doctor's diagnosis. And I try to tell you, like, well, I exercise, I'm eating okay, I feel fine, it's not that big of a deal. Now, imagine on top of that, if, like, a lot of people tried to, like, defend my decision to not listen to the doctor, how, like, crazy and strange that would sound, right? Obviously, the symptom points to the diagnosis, and the diagnosis solidifies what really is going on, right? The thing is, we have to understand that God knows and searches the hearts. So when God says, you know, these false teachings really are just a symptom of something much deeper and much more evil than what it appears to be just on the surface. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, this is one of the common warnings given to Timothy and Titus. But really unveiling, like pulling the curtain away from false teaching, is one of the most common themes, not just in the New Testament, but actually in the entire Bible. Especially when you get into the time frame of the prophets in the Old Testament. There's always been a problem when there are teachers of those who profess to know God and teach things outside of the realm of God's nature. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 13. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Really simple. The idea of evil men and imposters deceiving and being deceived. When you get back to 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, it mentions that people will be paying attention to deceitful spirits. 
that this would be through the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience the branding iron. That idea of being seared with a branding iron, that's another unique Greek word that's not used anywhere else in the Bible. And it's the idea that you think of hypocrisy and uh, the idea of a deceitful spirit. It's something's being presented in a way that really doesn't give truth to what it really is underneath the most superficial and external appearance. Um, So we need to look past the surface to understand what God diagnoses as the real problem behind false teaching. Uh, So false teaching is a symptom of a bigger problem, for one. Um, This is also a common problem in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians, Galatians, uh, 2 and 3 John, and then also Jude, 2 Peter. A lot of letters that are written in the New Testament are written because God's people... God's people are being lured into paying attention to things that, although it seems appealing, what the teachers in the New Testament continuously do is, again, they point to these deeper realities, and they'll point attention to what's being said that contradicts God's word, but then drawing attention to what's underneath it. So here's, I think, one of the main principles. There are a lot of things that sound really religious, and they make a lot of sense. Like the idea of abstaining from marriage, that sounds like, wow, that is a really devoted thing to do. Like if you're going to abstain from marriage, you must be like a super Christian or something. And abstaining abstaining from foods, again, that seems like a really strict, well-disciplined religious practice, right? But just because it sounds religious and strict does not automatically qualify it as fitting in consistency with God's nature and the expression of his will. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. It might just be a few pages back in your Bible. Colossians chapter 2. This was also happening in Colossae. Uh, Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 16 through 23. It says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and worship of angels, taking a stand in visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why As if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So do you get the idea there? Paul's warning the Colossians that there's a lot of things that, again, it's going to sound and it's going to appear like good wisdom. It's going to sound really religious, and there will be a draw that could pull you into it. But it is totally inconsistent with the head that is Christ. The nature of Christ, the expression of his will, it's completely outside of the realm of the expression of his will. And a lot of this is really simple. Like, you could really simplify the principle and apply it in this way. What has God said about that? Like if you're saying I should not eat these foods, well, 
Why can't I just look to what God has said about that? And if God has spoken clearly, giving freedom to eat all foods, then why should I listen and adhere to something that is contradicting what God has already said? So that's the simple thing. But I think there's something a little more, uh, not complicated, but something even underneath that choice that I think we're drawn to, drawn to that makes us not want to make that choice. If you look back in 1 Timothy 4, again, verse 2, the problem is these people are seared in their own conscience. And of course, they're not going to be honest about that. A seared conscience will appeal to other defiled consciences. Look back at chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 19. Remember what Paul urged Timothy to do in verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, notice, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Did you know that if you have an unresolved issue of conscience, that if you make the choice in yourself, you know that there's something that you should do or a choice you're making that you know is sinful and against God, the way that your conscience will deteriorate will eventually draw you away from God and it makes you vulnerable to listen to teachings that are inconsistent with God's will. Uh, The conscience, I think a helpful way to think about this, like in a car, we all have thermometer gauges in our car that says how hot the engine is. I used to drive a Toyota Highlander that had an overdrive button. It's a little button on the shift lever. And that button was really annoying uh, because I never used it and I would accidentally press it all the time. And if I accidentally press it, it would overwork my engine and overheat it. And one time I was on a road trip with a good friend of mine in Alabama, and he had accidentally hit that button. And we were going about 70 miles an hour in an interstate, and I was sleeping, and he had probably driven with overdrive off for about 30 minutes to an hour. And so he woke me up, and like, the thermometer on the engine was like, it was cranked and like there was beeping noises happening, you know, and he didn't know what was going on. Looked over and saw the overdrive was off. We pulled over and that could have destroyed my engine on my car and totaled the vehicle. And that's like our conscience. Our conscience, really, it's, it's like that thermometer gauge that tells you when something is going on that you've got to pull back from, with, with, withdraw from, giving you some kind of notification, this is leading you in the wrong direction. But just like clay can be hardened by heat, our conscience can be hardened by not addressing that problem. So I think that's really the underlying problem that Timothy is being exhorted to pay attention to. Yes, we can have clarity in knowing pretty distinctly what has God actually said on each matter, trying to keep ourselves in balance, not being more strict than God is, allowing the liberty and the freedom that God allows, but also making sure that we're in the boundaries that God has set by his word, Within that, the way that we maintain balance is ultimately when we seek to purify our consciences and our hearts so that we can maintain a very clear view of God and his will. We've got to maintain a clear view of the nature of God as it's expressed in Jesus Christ. That's the primary thing. The last thing with this first point is what captivates me. The problem is that Paul is saying people will be paying attention to these things. The idea of something captivating you is it draws your attention, it charms you, it allures you. I think a way to think about this is when you're alone, when you're finally by yourself, 
Where does your attention most immediately go? Where does your attention most immediately go? What you worship is what is most immediately pressing continually on your mind. That's what you worship. Godliness, as we transition to the next point, is trying to bring the worship of God into the forefront of our minds. So what charms your attention? What captivates you? That's where you find what you truly worship. And if we're not captivated by the Lord, it could be that my conscience is seared or being corrupted. And I don't have a clear view of God. So let's transition then into the nature of godliness. Um, and we're going to start in verse, verse 6 here through verse 10. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. First thing I want to do is define this term godliness. Because uh, really, the rest of this chapter is going to be fixated on the nature of this term, godliness. We're supposed to be disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. So literally, these first two points are what the literal definition is, if you were to like define it with a dictionary. Godliness is the idea of reverential awe, like having such a high view of someone or something that it puts you almost in a speechless condition. You're just so enthralled with a person or a thing. Awe-filled wonder and adoration. The idea of respect and admiration. Uh, really, this is the principle that elicits sincere praise from our hearts, when our view of God is filled with a sense of adoration and admiration, just on the basis of who he is. Not because of what necessarily we receive from him, but just on the basis of his character and who he is. So it's also a God-directed attitude, meaning it's, an, it's a mind that in the doing of a thing, or just in living, the mind is being directed to an accurate understanding of who God is or simply an ongoing conscientiousness of God. Uh, really the reason why anybody would sin after having come to the knowledge of the truth is they move away from conscientiousness of God. If I lose my temper and act out of anger, if I give in to lust to act on it, if I give in to a bitter mentality against a person any of those things, it's a symptom of having lost conscientiousness of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. I think beyond just those explicit definitions, uh, leading into chapter 3, we're given a more, um, I think, refined definition of godliness. So, and he says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And he gives a little poem there. Just by looking at it, can you tell what that little poem is talking about? He who is revealed in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. There's a name not mentioned there that this is all circling around, right? So the idea that we have on the board, godliness is a mystery that's revealed in Jesus. Godliness is much more than just these defined things. Really, 
When we're dealing with godliness, we're dealing with a concept that Jesus defines and manifests in its full definition. You think about Jesus again, it wasn't just that he did acts of righteousness. It's not just that he committed himself to doing what was right. It's that something within Jesus with his view of God kept him in an... He adored his father and respected and revered his father in an ongoing way. And that found expression through his ministry. It found expression through the cross. But those things that we can see on the outside were simply expressions of what Jesus saw of God on the inside first, right? So godliness is a mystery ultimately revealed in Jesus. So what we're talking about is cultivating a way of seeing God that fills our hearts and our minds with awe and adoration toward the Father that leads us to want to act, to want to be drawn to him. So principles of godliness and its discipline. Who is Jesus to you? Are you being drawn to him? There's a way of seeing Jesus where thinking about him is almost like thinking of Jesus is like a burden stacked on top of an already too heavy stack of burdens. So concentrating on Jesus, thinking about him, is almost like a nuisance. I think a way to think about what I mean by that, if I'm really busy, if I'm already heavily pressed by things in my schedule, when I read the Bible, I get frustrated because I don't understand it like I wish I did, and I wish I could read it more, so then I feel convicted and guilty when I read the Bible. Uh, when I think about God, I think about all these expectations he has and all his commands, and that makes me feel guilty. When I think about praying and I pray, well, that makes me feel guilty because I could be praying better, I could be praying more, and so now I feel guilty when I pray. And then when I think about Jesus, I think about how perfect his ministry was. He loved people perfectly. He spoke perfectly. So, well, now I feel guilty when I think about Jesus. So it's like whatever angle I approach God or Jesus from, I just end up feeling guilty in the process, right? If that's how you see Jesus, there's a big problem. Do not let another day go by seeing Jesus that way. You want to know how Paul saw Jesus? Look back at chapter 1, verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus is our mediator. Verse 6, he's the ransom, the purchase price for our atonement. Look at chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. Uh, which he will bring about at the proper time. And here's the key part. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Does it sound like Paul was drawn to the Lord? It sounds like Paul had a view of Jesus where it was just like a stack of obligations. Something we have to understand about godliness there are subtle ways to think about God that withdraw us from him. But I think it needs to be really clearly said, God is not our enemy. God is not our accuser. God is not just trying to give us works to accomplish, and if we don't do those works, then we're just a big disappointment to him. 
We have got to see Jesus in a way that draws us to him. Uh, Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6. You want to keep your finger or like a Bible marker in 1 Timothy chapter 4, <clears throat> uh, which I just didn't do, so it'll take me a little bit to get back there. I'll mark it right now. Uh, but in John chapter 6, uh, starting in verse uh, 43, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. If we are taught of God, we'll be drawn to him. You know, some of this involves like a change of mentality about Bible reading, right? Jesus is relating the eating of his body and his blood, uh, the drinking of his blood, to like eating the manna in the wilderness when Israel wandered with God in the desert for 40 years. The idea is like the manna didn't look like much, but that was their key in associating with the Father and having fellowship with him. And it was to lead them to dwell on the higher qualities of what they had with God, their lives being hidden with him in the desert, right? So in the same way, our Bible reading A lot of people read their Bibles, but they're not godly. A lot of people have a lot of Bible verses memorized. They read their Bible every day, but they don't understand godliness. Notice in 1 Timothy 4, in verse 6, he doesn't just tell Timothy to be constantly nourished on Scripture. He calls them the words of the faith and the sound doctrine. I need to see reading my Bible as God's way of giving his life to me. God's way of giving his life to me. When Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood in John 6, it sounds like he's talking about the Lord's Supper. But in John's Gospel in John 1.1, Jesus is the Word. The Scripture, this book right here, is not just facts to be read and understood. It's God giving his living life to me, for me to know him. It's him giving, spending himself out to draw me to him so that I can come to know him and grow in godliness. So we need to see Jesus in a way that draws, draws us to him. But we also need to see that the power and profit of godliness exceeds every discipline. So notice back in verse uh, 8 through 10, especially in verse 8, he mentions that bodily exercise profits a little bit. But verse 9 and 10, godliness exceeds that. Godliness not only holds the promise of the present life, but also the life to come, because that hope that's set in godliness is of not only this life, but especially of the life to come. Uh, And notice verse 10. Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. God passionately wants to have a relationship with everybody. He's given everything he has for the people of the world who don't believe, who are not saved, to come to know him. He yearns for that. How much more, having redeemed us, 
How much more passionately involved can God be in redeeming us to the end of his promises, right? So the idea is the profit and power of godliness is seen by God, but we need to see it as God does. We need to be driven to understand how precious it is to invest in this view of God. So with this being a discipline, why do people hurt their bodies with exercise, right? Why does somebody bother to like eat disgusting foods that don't have flavor so they can like lose weight? Why do people go running and hurt their legs and their bodies? Why do people lift weights that damage their muscles? Like why are so many people interested in that? It's because in some way it holds a promise. And people will like hurt their bodies week after week, basically seeing no sign of progress, knowing that consistently disciplining their bodies will eventually lead to some sign of progress. And I don't expect when I discipline my body, if I go running after having not run for years, I don't expect that I'll have the energy to immediately run a marathon. And I'll tell you, one of the things that when I used to like work out with weights, um, I used to really not like going back to the gym after getting sick for a week because I would feel so weak getting back into the routine it would be so discouraging and demotivating, right? But if I was going to get back in routine, I just had to, I had to deal with that. Because exercise exposes how weak you are. And you don't even realize how weak your muscles are until you actually try to start using them, right? So I think a lot of the obstacles of the discipline of godliness is I expect I should be getting incredible things out of the Bible every time I read it. Reading the Bible should be this naturally passionate thing that I'm drawn to, Prayer, I should be able to say amazing things when I pray. I should be able to feel satisfied praying for like, you know, an hour without any problem. But that's really not the case, is it? Right? And the problem is when we start applying ourselves to godliness, we are confronted with how weak we are. I don't get as much out of my Bible reading as I wish I did. I don't read the Bible as much as I wish I did. I don't pray like I wish I could. And oftentimes, I'll get distracted while I'm praying and be frustrated with, why can't I concentrate on this? So this, this truly is a discipline based in promise. And I have to be okay with being weak in the process. Because I know when I work out, how weak I feel is an essential component of the process of progress. Right? If we think that we can make progress on our faith and mature just magically, we're thinking like the world. <laughs> Those things that are valuable, we are okay to feel weak in the process of achieving a valued promise. Notice in verse, uh, verse 10, we have fixed our hope in the living God. Someone's going to stay motivated, working out, hurting their body consistently, They've got to pretty well keep their eye on the prize. They're going to have to keep maintaining perspective in the process. That really, here's what I'm looking for, and I understand it's hard now, and there's going to be some like brick walls that I'm going to face that might slow down my progress, but I really want to make sure I attain to this goal. Jesus is our goal. Jesus is not our competition. Jesus is not somebody when we see his ministry to feel jealous of or inadequate and then give up. God is doing everything he can with all the passion and force of his glory to help us and serve us in humbling ways to achieve to that goal. 
It's like having a trainer who's buying all your food for you, setting up everything that you need, getting you all the protein powder and all the foods that you need, motivating you when you're working out, trying to help you as much as possible, trying to make it as easy for you as possible to achieve your goal. God has set us up to succeed and not to fail. We need to see God correctly. So God's patience and his grace are the key to developing in godliness. If I just see God out there somewhere, this is not going to be a discipline I'm going to apply myself to. We've got to understand God's grace in much more personal ways. We've got to understand what God has done for me, what he's doing in me, and where he's leading me. So if you kind of think about this with the Jews who hated Jesus, to them, Jesus just made them feel guilty. They saw a way of living out the law they had never seen before. And if that's true, well, then I'm guilty. So they hated Jesus. We cannot see God as a competition to the way we're living our lives. We need to understand that his grace and patience is key. If you look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1, you notice in verse 14, he says, The grace of our Lord is more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, I needed the fullness of the grace and love and patience and mercy that Christ was offering me in order to attain to what he had promised. And if you look at verse uh, 16, he mentions that his conversion is an example of God's perfect patience to all those who will believe. Do not doubt God's patience with you. Do not doubt that God will bring you to the fullness of his promise, and that's his full intention. But again, if we understand those things, then we apply ourselves to the discipline. So uh, 11 through 16, with specifically thinking about applications, we'll get into these in a moment after reading this. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example uh, of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance, the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation, both for yourself and those who hear you. So you'll notice that he's telling Timothy, be diligent, be absorbed in it, have endurance, and make progress. An evidence that we lack godliness, and listen carefully to this, an evidence that we lack godliness is when our convictions are short-lived and shallow. When, like, I make a determination, here's how I want to grow in pleasing God, maybe last for like a day or two, back to routine. Or my applications I make are, are just shallow. There's nothing changing in my heart. It's an absence of godliness. And that's, that's not to just, you know, convey some sense of hopelessness, but that the attitude of godliness is the key to growing and enduring in our convictions that relate to Christ. So growth and application also depends on growth and godliness. And what I mean by that is there are an array of applications in the word and a wisdom in understanding how to make those applications that will never be seen if we're not growing in godliness. They will never be seen if we are not growing in godliness. You remember in Hebrews 5 when the Hebrew writer exhorted them and said, you ought to be teachers by now. 
And you have need of milk and solid food because you're not accustomed to the word of righteousness to make discernment between good and evil. Growth in application depends on growth in godliness. If we're growing in godliness, by consequence, we'll be growing in applying our reverence toward the Lord. So just some quick applications and the lesson will be uh, drawn to a close. Look specifically at verse 12. He's telling Timothy, don't demand respect. Don't try to be forceful or intimidating. Rather, show yourself to be an example of all these different qualities. And the idea is everything in our life can connect with Jesus. And we should desire that because anything in our life disconnected from Jesus is totally vain and unsubstantial. But the degree of value in whatever we're purposely striving to connect to Jesus is indescribable. So we need to learn to connect our speech, our behavior, our conduct, our purity, connect those things to Jesus. And those are things that you can do however busy you are right now, however occupied you are, however burdened you are. The text is not saying you have to do something you have no capability to do. You can refine your speech and connect it to Jesus in the midst of whatever schedule you have, however burdened you are, right? We've got to learn to connect everything in our life to Jesus. But in chapter 5, verse 4, there's a principle in chapter 5, verse 4. It says, if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety, which is a form of the same word for godliness, in relation to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. Godliness begins in how I treat my family. Godliness begins in leading and helping my family to develop godliness. The discipline of godliness, the first place to apply it, apply it toward your children. Apply it toward your siblings. Apply it toward your parents. Remember, honor your father and mother. How connected that is to reverence toward the Lord. If you want to develop godliness, start with leading, teaching, and being an example to your family first. Uh, one, one quick point on that. Reading scripture with your family should be the most simple application we could possibly make of this. He told Timothy, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. And he said, don't pay attention to the deceitful things of this life, but you can pay attention to Scripture. We should be leading our family to love the sacrifice of time and to see the value in the public reading of Scripture. If that's not what we're helping each other to value, it may be a symptom of an absence of godliness in our homes. Consider the principles of fasting. And I don't just mean sacrificing food. Like, you can do that, and that's also fasting. But there's a principle in fasting in Scripture. It's the idea of making a sacrifice of something that's just a routine or habit, something that really just is for me, and giving that up to make sure I can just then fill that time with whatever can glorify God with that time instead. And I think the reason why this can be very helpful you can find out really quickly things that you are literally addicted to that you did not know you were addicted to. For instance, I didn't realize I was addicted to wasting time on the internet until I tried to take that out of my routine, and then I realized, wow, I think a lot about wasting time on the internet, and I'm super drawn to that, right? Video games, watching TV, browsing the internet, watching movies, there's nothing wrong with those things. I'm not advocating what Paul was not advocating in the beginning of the chapter by binding things we have freedom uh, towards. 
But it's the idea of we need to make deliberate sacrifices to honor God. We should desire that every nook and cranny of our lives can be given to the glory of God. It's fine to watch TV. It's fine to play video games. It's fine to watch movies. It's fine to browse the internet. But the idea of godliness is you're not just giving full allowance to self-worldly pleasure. You're trying to make a sacrifice to cultivate willful reverence and adoration for God. Oftentimes those things that are just reserved for self-pleasure are the very things that are keeping godliness restricted from its proper growth in our lives. Uh, We need to be deliberate in being nourished on God's words. And that's just the idea of we need to be not overwhelming ourselves with some expectation of reading the Bible, but just with whatever you can do, be focused and deliberate about Bible reading. Think about 1 Thessalonians, five chapters. They're each very short. If you spend a month trying to make free time to just meditate on 1 Thessalonians, one chapter might take like 40 seconds to read. If in a month you read one chapter of that over and over again with the other chapters, like 15 times, 10 times, that's going to get pretty deep in your mind. And you're going to begin to meditate on principles of applications from that eventually, right? It's the idea of, not trying to like think, I've got to read through the Bible in this amount of time, and if I don't make that, well, then it's doomed and I give up. No, just be simple, make it approachable, and be deliberate. And finally, study your heart. Study your heart. One of the main things in verse 16 that I think Paul's exhorting Timothy, you need to make sure you watch yourself carefully. Grow in godliness and look within yourself to see and notice What's pulling you away from that? What's pulling you away from godliness? Don't ignore your heart. I'll tell you, one of the things that I think Satan wants desperately to do, he doesn't want you to look into your heart. doesn't want you to use God's word to reflect intentions or desires that contradict God's glory. doesn't want you to have the desire to fill your heart as much as possible with the glory of adoring God, but rather that your heart be shallow your faith be superficial, and although you may hold to a form of godliness, you're certainly denying its power. God has given the principle of godliness as a treasure to those who value Jesus Christ. Like that treasure hidden in the field. The person who saw that treasure didn't have to be told, hey, do you know how valuable that is? Hey, you need to pay this much for it. No, he saw the treasure. He sold everything he had because this was something he understood from his own discovery. Discovering Jesus and who he is should be the most incredible thing. And we need to help each other to consistently work towards the discipline of manifesting that reality. So finally, all of these principles, don't wait until you feel emotionally compelled. (laughs) Don't wait until you feel like, well, this only matters to God if I feel as emotionally compelled as possible, if I I have to force myself, it's not valuable. Get that out of your mind. A sacrifice is more valuable when it's done in faith of promise, even when it's not of the most inner sense of passion. Imagine as a parent, you tell your child to do something, do the dishes, clean the room. You come back a day later, it's still a mess, and you ask why, and they say, well, I don't feel like that'll really matter unless I feel emotionally ready to do it. So I didn't do the dishes and clean my room like you asked. I've got to be emotionally ready for that. You kidding me? Do it. (laughs) Listen, respect your parent. If we respect God, 
it's most evident when we practice the discipline of godliness. We'll bring the lesson to a close there. If you're not a Christian, you need to consider the value of what God is offering in a way that leads you to desire to repent. Not just to be saved, but to repent of a way of living that is entirely against the product of godliness and the growth of godliness. So I'd appeal to you to think on God's word in these ways and to think on his son and study with us and please allow us to speak to you about these things if you're willing. And if you are a Christian and need the prayers of the church in any way this morning, please come when we stand and sing the invitation song.